the internet got us all connected. Now what? Or so what? That's what we got to ask ourselves. And I, and I hinted at this before. What are we going to do with this technology to make the world a better place? Like one thing. We have climate catastrophe looming. We have massive political upheaval across the globe. Uh, we have inflamed tensions created by this technology that connected us. Um, we have massive income inequality in lots of places in the world. What are we going to do about any one of those things? Pick one. And can we fix it? Hello and welcome to Medium Energy, where we explore technology, being human, and how to find the right balance between the two. I'm your host, Evan Helda, and I'm here to learn with you about tools like spatial computing, blockchain, and artificial intelligence, and how they're all converging to reshape our world. If you want to take full advantage of these tools while staying grounded in the real world, you've come to the right place. For deeper dives into all these topics and more, please check out our newsletter over at mediumenergy.io. We'd love to have you as part of our growing community of thinkers, creators, and doers. Today's episode is with Tony Parisi. I've known Tony for almost seven years now. Most people know him as one of the earliest pioneers in all things immersive tech or all things metaverse, if you will. From virtual reality to web-based 3D to real-time 3D, and most recently, Web3 and NFTs. So it's safe to say Tony's been thinking about this idea of the metaverse for longer than almost anyone really in the entire industry. He's been fighting the good fight and trying to make this tech stack mainstream for almost 30 years now. And as a result, he's considered one of the most renowned OGs in the space. He certainly has a scar tissue and more importantly, the wisdom to prove it. And this episode certainly backs that up. Now, what makes this interview unique is the extent to which Tony has a rare blend of both right brain and left brain skill sets and thinking. On one hand, he's hyper-technical. He's created several international 3D graphic standards. He's offered several books on 3D and virtual reality programming, but he's also an author and a very talented musician. And that's how we start off this conversation, exploring how Tony is leveraging his technical prowess with his passion for music to create the first ever play to be produced and funded by NFTs. So I'm excited for you to listen to this one. It's got a bit of everything from tech to philosophy to the trials and tribulations of the startup life and much more. So without further ado, I bring you Tony Parisi. Tony, welcome. Welcome to Medium Energy. Thanks for the time. To kick things off, I want to start with your current project. At last, it took a few decades, but you found, I think, a super compelling way to wrap three of your greatest loves into one package, music, internet spatial computing. So I'm excited to unpack this with you. To do so, let's start by blasting our listeners 10, 20 years into the future. Can you tell us what success looks like for this current project when things come together and why people sh should care? 10 to 20 years in the future, uh, we should be looking in the rearview mirror and see that um, there was a creator renaissance that happened. There was a change mm. in how folks value the arts and the value of what artists can bring, which is connected to my own personal journey, which is now that I'm all in on my music, I'm very, very interested in how artists across different arts and entertainment sectors are reclaiming their ability to earn money, earn a living, control their economic destiny, and in fact, uh, control their creative future because the very nature of what's happened with technology in the last couple of decades 
has not only extracted more and more value from creators, but it has also created systems where they have to effectively play to the crowd, market to certain algorithms, and it actually changes the nature of the art that people want to produce. So if we look at this 20 years in the future, hopefully we'll, we will have seen this was a magical time where um, our culture is valuing the arts again, and the technologies of the metaverse, Web3, and all the things we're talking about will have really been reshaped to support that vision fully. And so we're going to see that period and look back on it as another renaissance. Exciting. So what is that current project? I understand it. I think it involves NFTs, metaverse. Can you give us a quick download on what this thing looks like? Yeah, it's actually a musical. So I am a, I've been, I'm a lifelong musician. As much as I've been in the immersive computing world for three decades now, I've been playing music in some form or another since I could walk. At the age of three, I was at my dad's side. He was a working musician sitting on the piano stool, listening to him play, and then learning and learning a bunch of different instruments. And then when I was 12, I got my first drum set, and then it was all over for my parents especially because the drum set was in the living room and I was playing rock and roll. And then I joined mm -hmm. rock bands. And I actually went to music school first to pursue a career in professional music, which I quickly realized you don't need to go to music school for that. You need to become a successful band or working musician mm -hmm. and switch gears and went into a computer science career track because I was also really good at math and a good student. And so along the way, though, I kept fresh with my music and I play lots of different instruments. I write a lot of songs. And uh, 15 years ago, I completed the writing of a musical, which now, as it turns out, is one of three musicals I have in the pipe. Uh, this one's called Judgment Day. It's a musical about the end of the world. Boy meets girl, mm. boy gets girl. Boy loses girl because a malign entity called the One uh, first seduces, then enslaves humanity. And there's a big uprising, and the world is destroyed in a cosmic battle between good and evil. And at the end, he's the only the protagonist is the last man standing. And explores themes of religion, uh, rationality, love and loss, and uh, you know a lot of stuff like that. And then surveillance, capitalism, technology, the effects of you know technology on us, geopolitical stuff. And so I finished writing that around 2008, 2009. It sat in a drawer for about a decade. Life intervened, and then I dusted it off, especially during lockdown. I dusted it off to make all the demos and then make a record. And I released Very the cool. record, which is effectively the concept album for a piece of musical theater like a two-hour live theater thing with music you know rock music rock music electronic music it's very modern and as i started thinking about how i was going to get that show produced how i was going to get the record distributed i started looking at what was going on with web3 and music I had already mm. been collecting visual NFTs. I'd already been buying cryptocurrency for a few years. So I wasn't really a stranger to blockchain or crypto. And, you know, the NFT wave started happening in 2018 or thereabouts. And so I started looking at that as a possibly viable way to monetize the music. Because if I, if I was just to put this out on Spotify, for example, I would need a million listens to get $3,000. Just the, the, the economics of doing things on streaming services doesn't really work in favor of the artist. So that's how I was motivated to look into this. And I stumbled upon, basically on Twitter, just following a bunch of people, a whole group of up-and-coming independent music artists who are working in Web3 and selling their music as NFTs. So a piece of music with a piece of visual art. And the buyers also then get certain benefits for having for doing those purchases, which, which I'm happy to sort of walk through and talk, talk yeah, yeah. to you about the kind of things musicians are doing and offering their collectors and their holders. But you can kind of think about it as like 
from a from a collector's standpoint, it's like Patreon meets Pokemon. So you're supporting an artist's career if you, you like their art, like their music, and you're getting something a digital collectible of value. So I decided to go down that path. And so what we've done is we've created an NFT collection uh, around ten of the songs from the album of Judgment Day, and we're releasing them over the period of several months. And the coolest thing about this as well, there's two cool things. The first <laughs> is it's the first musical theater that's ever been released on the blockchain. So that's really cool. I, uh, no that's one's awesome. ever done that before. So I'm pleased, pretty chuffed with myself that we did do that. Um, yeah, very but cool. then the other thing that's really cool, and I think much more important at the end of the day, is I'm using a portion of the proceeds. I'm paying an artist, my wife, Marina Berlin, who does this amazing art behind us and does a bunch of digital painting as well. And she's made a gorgeous collection. Uh, paying her, paying the developer who wrote the smart contract for the NFTs, the rest of the proceeds are going to fund the live musical. So development. So, you know, I've got a record. I've got a story, a full libretto. It's, you know, pages and pages, 50 pages of script. Um, but to turn that into a live show with blocking, with actors, figuring out how it's staged, are we going to use high tech? Are we going to be in a warehouse? Are we going to do projection maps and all that? That requires work. And I actually signed on a development partner at Double Eye Studios, who's a, a well-known immersive developer. They've done some of the most amazing VR live theater pieces ever. Uh, run in with uh, Reggie Watts, that Reggie Watts song, uh, which is, I think you've probably seen that one at a Sundance before yeah. with me, Evan. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, you get to dance along with Reggie and a bunch of people who have been captured in 3D, volume captured in 3D. Cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, Finding Parandora X, which is uh, people in VR are playing the part of Greek chorus with actors playing out these archetypal parts on, in a story set on Mount Olympus. Um, and these are the kind of pieces Double Eye has done. So, we are now already working on the live production using the proceeds from selling the NFT. So it's super exciting. So it's bringing together my background in spatial computing, like you said, and it's kind of bringing all my trajectories together with my first love music, which I've recently uh, quit my day job to go pursue full time. Super exciting. So overall, primarily a funding mechanism. And really it's this idea of patronage plus, right? I'm a patron, I get other benefits. I can say that I was part of the members that funded this thing. But I think right now we have to admit that NFTs are sort of in a negative light. So I'm curious, I, I imagine you get not blowback, but maybe some eye rolls from people. Oh, why don't you just go ask for money from some investors and raise money the traditional way? What is broken about the current or more traditional approach to fundraising that you think this is fixing? And wait, wait, is there a leapfrog moment happening with this approach? versus the old approach of producing? Well, I mean, it's a great question. And innovation often happens because something is broken and because there is opportunity to do something a new way. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, the broken part of funding right now is if you look at traditional life theater, um, it's suffering pretty well. I mean, the big Broadway blockbusters will still draw people in. If you're in New York and you're a tourist, you're going to line up for Hamilton. And those top... Yep shows will do that but live theater nationally globally very different story you're not getting the butts and seats that world is dwindling so therefore uh, mm-hmm. investors are going to be much more gun shy about funding anything that's not already proven so by having a property that's got a proven fan base already and is already generating revenue i'm de-risking this show for investors i am going to talk to investors because to yeah. do this show right, I eventually I'm going to need to raise a few million dollars or more. We haven't budgeted it out yet, but this is going to be a two-hour live production with top talent, cool. D 
you know, top, uh, you know, orchestra, everything, a big show in my vision and if, to realize that that's going to take a lot of money. Um, so we're going to get there in baby steps developmentally by doing these other pieces I talked about. And again, if you can bring a pitch deck to investors that includes existing fans, a following, um, yeah. generating revenue, even though it's small right now, that actually fundamentally changes things. And so creates a foundation for you to build. It's, off. it's, it's a foundation. Like, and, it lets you go yeah. from zero to maybe not zero to one, zero to 0.5 at least. And yeah, it's, it's not, it's not an entirely web three play. It's a bit of both, which is what we're seeing pan out is like, it's not web three versus web two. It's not old way versus new way. It's just augmenting the old way with elements that are great. About exactly. Them, right. Exactly. Right. And then there's, but then there is the innovation side of this, which is that we also can do something different because of the power of smart contracts and NFTs. People who collect those NFTs are not going to just get a digital asset. They get something that could also be a theater ticket. They get something that could actually uh, help them participate in the live show. We haven't figured out what yet, but you can imagine being a techie like me that you could have stuff on your smartphone and QR codes and it could all connect up into something that is part of the live show and has a life after the live show online in some kind of place in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're going to explore all of those things as well. And that's, that, that's only enabled by this kind of new tech. So Love it. that's the thing that people, they get hung up on NFTs and crypto, mostly because they see the lurid, lurid stories in the press on the crypto mm -hmm. side about all the crash and burn and on the NFT side about these projects, you know, these ape type of projects that don't really generate a lot of value. They're purely speculative. Um, mm -hmm. What a lot of folks are doing in blockchain and NFTs, though, is much more of this uh, utility based version of this where you're combining art with offering fans, collectors and supporters utility. And you're connecting it up to this really cool technology that's going to effectively define whole new products in the space yeah. of entertainment, right? So it's really exciting. So you said the word earlier that you're a techie, which I think is an understatement. Um, so for you, this stuff's a bit more accessible. And you know, I'm a believer. I'm passionate about it. I run around writing about it. And I meet lots of artists here in L.A., and they they see all this stuff happening in NFTs, but they just don't know where to begin, or they don't get it, or you know, vice versa. I'm curious what your conversation looks like when you're in the wild and you meet some of these other artists who see the promise, but either if they don't understand why they should do it and then how, how they should do it, if you're in an elevator with them for five minutes, like what's your elevator pitch to them as to why they should do it and then how they can get started? How would you like to make more money and have a deeper connection with your fans? Actually, even know who your listeners are. Nobody okay. knows who their listeners are on Spotify and Apple Music. Okay, I like that. Right? That's a good answer. Yeah, I mean, that's and then, the and bottom line. how do you explain line. to them, like, what's different in this new world to accomplish that outcome versus the old world? And again... And then I have to illustrate with an example. This And this gets yeah. to, you know, concepts like the thousand true fans, if you know that um, yeah, theory. Kevin you know, Kelly, Kevin right? Kelly published a, mm -hmm. an article called that uh, around 2008, I think it was, uh, where he basically said, look, the internet, and boy, we went sideways in between, but anyway, <laughs> maybe we're getting back to this. The internet enables it so that I can find a thousand people who like my music or my art, and they'll pay me like $10 a month, $100 a year, $200 a year, and I as an artist can make a living. These are the super fans. They're not everyone is going to come to every one of my shows, but they're the people who spend consistently to get some swag for me, to listen to my music, to buy a ticket to a live show. Um, 
And Web3 is enabling that now. So, I mean, that's the key to this, the dynamic to this whole thing is like, I don't need to reach a million people or a hundred million people the way these streaming services and social platforms have conditioned us um, would be the only way to succeed. I just need to use these online tools to find a few thousand folks and a few, you know, and a good percentage of them will buy like what I'm doing if I, if I'm able to find them and then I can have a career. I can have a living wage. I can, if, I, if I'm an artist that just wants to make my music and not worry about it, I could build a media empire if I'm really clever and really want to grind. Um, yeah. And I can do that in a way where I am making much more of the money. And mm -hmm. the technology I'm using is taking a much smaller percentage of that money when I do that. I like and, it. Yeah, yeah. it's and great. But there's so much, there's so much, yeah, there's so much friction though, right? Uh, I mean, there's so much like, People don't understand what's going on in Web3, and there's so much miscommunication. And again, the focus is on the negative parts of the story. And even if you get past that, mm -hmm. then you get to the reality of crypto wallets, yep. um, crypto jargon. Mm -hmm. um, this is clearly the province. This stuff has been designed by programmers. It was designed for programmers. by programmers for like decentralized finance, right? Yeah, this was yeah. not even designed for people who were trying to build media for someone to consume. And and everything that's been built lately on top of it is trying to, you know, move that forward and create these digital assets people can consume and these online experiences for their fans and collectors. Mm -hmm. But the UX is a freaking mess. So then, you know, you get to that level and people people try to learn and they're just like, what just happened? I've met a mask, what? And, but, but I don't know what's yeah. going on, right? Yeah. So, so where are we today in our efforts to fix that mess? Like what, are there any tools that exist that you're, you're comfortable pointing a layman artist to that they can start getting started with minting or, you know, building wallets and creating this connection with their fans? Yeah. I mean, all of it's getting better by degrees. I mean, one of the things you've seen, if you go to the NFT marketplaces, like say OpenSea, they at least offer anyone who's a prospective collector a way to collect digital assets just using a credit card, which most people are comfortable with doing in a web page or app now. Yep. Um, and then under the covers, they'll actually convert it to the crypto because all the code was written to deal with the crypto, right? The, so they'll make mm -hmm. you a basically an Ethereum wallet on the fly. You will get that digital asset. It will be put into this wallet that you know they're taking care of for you. And you will own the asset. You'll have that wallet address, and you didn't have to figure the MetaMask setup out right away, right? So that that part's kind of cool. Um, but if you look at it more from a a more holistic point of view, I mean, so those are putting band aids on existing things, right? But if you look at it from a more holistic point of view, um, actually, Lambda One, the company I just left recently, I'd uh, love to talk to you about them a little bit very much focused on is there a way to have a more user-friendly and integrated user experience that doesn't start with a terminology like wallet because you're immediately put on high alert and defensive that it's like wait i, I just want to go play around in the metaverse and now i'm already like linking up my wallet to this i'm gonna get i'm gonna get my money stolen right there's this there's this whole terrifying psychology to it um that is purely an artifact of the nomenclature not being designed properly for you know what we're talking about and so when you get to, I want to go in the metaverse, I want to play a game, I want to hang out at my friend's 3D space, I want to experience some really cool artwork, I want to go visit some place, you know, that I couldn't get to physically, you know, Thailand or somewhere, and I, beautiful 3D recreation of it. I, I, I shouldn't be thinking about wallets, I should be thinking about uh, 
my avatar, my clothing, my, my inventory of digital stuff, none of which in the real world lives in your wallet. They're in a backpack, they're in a closet, they're on your body. You've got, again, you've got your avatar, you've got accessories, you've got, you've got handbags. Um, and then at some point when you want to transact, that's where your wallet would come into play, right? So there's yep. a bit of like, let's refactor the nomenclature. Uh, let's think about that consumer journey from the beginning of being in the metaverse. And and when I say metaverse, I, I mean it very, very broadly, by the way. You know, my definition of it, of it is always encompass more than 3d stuff though you know it's one of its you know, key characteristics will be there's going to be a lot of 3d in it which is how you and i met we we love all the 3d stuff um, indeed but really this is about kind of connecting online i mean it's yeah. so you know there's more stuff that's happening on the internet it's getting more spatial it's getting more you know all these payment methods are evolving there's you know ai is now coming to help hopefully and not destroy us all that stuff you know yay tech's getting better um <laughs> but we have to think through what those new user journeys are going to be like. Um, I think if we're going to get the most out of all these technologies happening right now. So I love what Lamina One's really focused on there, and they publish some white papers and light papers around identity, open metaverse system services, which I helped write when I was still there. Um, and so that's one of the companies to watch, I would say. Um, and then there's just, a, you know, there's a general realization in the industry that, right now it's a bit of a club and it is still really hard to break into not because people don't want you there but it's just not inviting it's just not an inviting place yet so hopefully yeah, that will I, get, I get it. uh it's solved in the next few years as as and and then you know you have to watch the timing of it because then you know there was this big crypto crash at the end of last year so then you get that usual thing like like we had in you know 1998 or 1999 which i remember because i'm old enough which is like, oh, the internet's a fad, right? And then you had like the the the, the equivalent, the, you know, the Web3 equivalent back then would have been pets.com doing an IPO around pet food because all these tech companies were doing public offerings and didn't really back up back it up with a viable business. And then those businesses crashed yeah. and shareholders I mean, look, lost look their money. Right? Instacart, and so therefore, yeah. 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 But, you know, back then, that... therefore, it's like the internet's yeah. a fad. No, that's not, you know, people are, because I'm, you know, crooks are going to come in and take your money, right? As always. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, timing is always the uh, the end all be all. And yeah, Webvan was Web Instacart Van, yeah. twenty years yeah. ago, right? Exactly. And so the idea wasn't wrong; it's the timing. Timing was wrong. I think it's the same same thing here. So you mentioned Lamina One. Uh, I doubt people know this, but Lamina it was founded by Neil Stevenson, right? Who is uh, the author of all kinds of amazing sci fi books, and Snow Crash being the the quintessential uh, blueprint for the metaverse for most people. And uh, he actually even coined the term metaverse. What was it like working with Neil Stevenson, someone with that kind of vision over at Lamina One? Well, he's great. And I think a lot of people who know about him from his uh, literary work don't realize that he's quite a technologist. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a pretty deep background in computer science and he has been an entrepreneur in technology companies more than once at this point. So I think a lot of folks don't understand that. And he's very thoughtful as an entrepreneur and, you know, chairman and chief creative when he was like full time on it right now, he's in the chairman role now. And um, it's been, it was great working with Neil and we still talk a lot because I'm still involved uh, helping out Lamina One as an advisor. And um, it was kind of, it was a fun first call I got from Neil. What happened was I had been working at 
Unity, this company, for six years prior to that. Mm -hmm. And um, this is the company that makes the video game engine that powers most VR and AR and most mobile games as well. Um, basically, it's democratized game development before you used to have to, like, build your own game engines. Long story, but they really made that technology much easier to use and make it so that a small indie team in a garage could build a hit game on mobile. And they've done very well doing that. And I, I ran VR and AR for Unity for six years, um, trying to move them from pure gaming mentality into all the other applications that VR and AR enable, education, training, um, non-game entertainment, uh, medical, and so on, uh, you know, real enterprise apps. And they have moved in that direction now. And I spent a lot of time there. I spent like six years there. But I, that was the first day of job I quit to go do my music. And I was unemployed mm. for about a week when I got a call from Neil Stevenson last spring in 2022. <laughs> you can't hide metaverse. I know, I know. I was like, the metaverse is always going to suck yeah. you in, it seems. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So they pulled me back in. And um, Neil said, Yeah, we're, you know, we're starting this startup. Um, we, we think you got to bring spatial computing tech together with blockchain and Web3 and crypto to really get the most value out of both. That, you know, Web3 needs a better interface and more friendly places to be. Um, Spatial computing needs a global payment system that's not controlled by one entity. Um, and, you know, the metaverse itself can't be controlled by one entity. Oh, and I had just published a few months before that my epic uh, screed polemic called the seven rules of the metaverse, which has made the rounds for a couple of years now. Um, and I was, uh, you know, no holds barred around like people can't control this. No one's going to control it. Even if they try, it's not going to happen, by the way, Evan. Mm -hmm. um, but no one's even going to try. All the big tech companies at least are making all the noises about open technology, open standards. Yeah, no, we don't want to control it. We just want, you know, we just want our little part of it, our corner. So, you know, we get on the phone and Neil's talking to me and we just basically have this moment after about 90 minutes, which is just like, yeah, we got to do this. This is, we have the open metaverse has to be, the metaverse has to be open. And both he and I felt that we need to play our part in making that happen. Me being a 30 year veteran of the tech originally inspired by reading snow crash. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's and cool. Him, so you know, like waking you, up to a world of, of yeah. VR, you know, the snow crash and crypto. He wrote the book on crypto too, cryptonomicon, uh, yeah. the web three and Bitcoin geeks were in no small way influenced by Neil's writing. So we're living in his world. So in a, you know, surreal way for him, he obviously couldn't be on the sidelines too much for that. So, that was the you know the genesis of Lamina One, and I joined as the first exec in uh, uh, June of last year, and I was grinding along on that. And at some point, I just had I I, I think what really did it for me. Anyway, now we're segueing, but yeah. So Neil's great to work with. Sorry, I was about to just go tangent off this if you don't mind. Well, no, I but, I, yeah. I am curious about yeah. the journey there, and cause, I mean you you were you were not there for too long. You're there for a year, year and a half, and you're yeah, like fifteen now. months. Yeah, yeah. But and, it seems and, like that was, was so good. in your wheelhouse, your overall life mission, why why leave? Why go off and do this play thing? Yeah, so here it was. I, I, I just, the siren call, no pun intended, was just too strong to get going on all this music and art. I had been yeah. pushing it off for too long. And then I think combined with, I think what finally did it to me, though, honestly, was the noise around AI. All this mm. noise around AI, whether you're a fan of it, you're afraid of it, a little of both, which is how I consider myself. I'm quite ambivalent. Um, I use the tools every day. I use ChatGPT, I use MidJourney, I use Dolly, like daily. Um, I'm, I'm really concerned about where it's all going. Like, 
what what monstrous thing is Silicon Valley going to find? That's my ambivalence. <laughs> it was going through that uh, internally made me realize, I think maybe I need a break from all this tech stuff. Mm. I just needed a break from the day-to-day -day of being mm -hmm. in the tech business. And I had this other thing that was really pulling at me, so that was the time. So as good as everything's been with Lamina One, as excited about the mission as I still am, mm -hmm. I just like started get up, getting up in the morning not wanting to do that and just wanting to do my art for a while. So, and, and I'd been putting that off for way too long. So I was like, all right, now or never. So that was it. No, like nothing it. more like profound yeah, than you that. Had, you had nothing the indicative of Lamina and, uh... One, nothing indicative of the space in general. Yeah. It's just like, for me, I got to go do this from the other side now. I got to go try to make stuff with all this tech, not just keep, you know, throwing tech at people and saying, here, yeah, and this. the space needs lighthouse successes. And you've been working on building the picks and shovels for so long, it hasn't taken off quite yet. I'm sure you have, you, you had hoped it would by now. And so now it's like, hey, let's, let's go, let's go show people the blueprint. And I think that's actually a really cool part of your, your arc and your story is to go get your hands dirty and just, if you want something done right, do it yourself kind of mindset. So there's that. And yes, it has been taking a while. This December of this year will be the 30th anniversary of when I had my first conversation with Mark Pesci and we started talking about putting 3D on the internet. And six months after that, we launched what came to be known as VRML. VRML, <clears throat> the first attempt to do 3D on the internet 29 plus years ago. Um, it's taking a while. Yeah. And 3D on the internet is still... <laughs> not an easy thing so that's a great segue let's go, let's go back to the beginning uh to a young tony coming out of music school his his hopes or his original plans of becoming a musician you're rethinking them what was it about 3d and immersive experiences that that drew you in I don't remember when I first decided as I was getting my computer science degree or working early, you know, my career in the field, when I decided I was really excited about 3D. I don't remember exactly when it was, but I can tell you what I was imagining. Mm. It was Princess Leia on that tabletop as a hologram <laughs> in the original Star Wars. Yeah. Which well, I saw as a little kid. hologram example, right? Yeah. I saw that as a little kid. And I started, actually, I was, I think... Yeah, I was working in tech. I, I, now I remember I was working at Lotus, the company that invented the spreadsheet before they got bought by IBM years later. And um, I was actually imagining, I don't think it was a musical, it was a stage play, science, science fiction stage play, and it had hologram people in it. Now I'm, now I'm remembering like this on the spot. We're doing some deep excavation here, Evan. Um, <laughs> yeah, good. and this so... Is, this is the point. Yeah, it was, there was some like... War games, I don't know, hologram game. You know, and I was a big science fiction geek growing up, like like the original Star Trek, the Star Wars movies. Then the mm -hmm. uh, next generation was hitting TV uh, when I was, you know, in my early career. <clears throat> and um, I was just thinking about that when I had a project at one of my jobs. It was after Lotus, another company called BBN, which effectively invented the, inter the, the commercial internet for the for the government originally. Um, and I was in some scientific computing team and there was a project to build some 3D graphics, like charts, 
like just imagine 3D data visualization charting. So mm -hmm. then I learned the math behind it. And I was like, all right, I can actually do this. So that's when I was you know, fairly early in my career. And then went off and did another job, a little startup in Boston. This is all when I was in the Boston area. Wife and I packed up our truck and moved to um, San Francisco just before that VRML thing happened. And Mark Pesci said, I want to build a 3D interface to the internet. And I was like, I know how to code 3D. And then I cracked a few more books like Silicon Graphics Workstation Manuals and Open Inventor Programming Book, whatever it was, and boned up on a few things and just got to it. Um, but yeah, I was trying to create holograms. First in so the late you've, you've, 80s and then in the early 90s. Yeah. So what are some of the highlights on that, in that effort, right? You did some stuff on the web. You've had a bunch of projects. What are some like the top two or three things you've done that you're proud of over the last well, couple decades? Well, just getting these specs out. And it's not just VRML and its, its successor X3D, but then years later, 10, 11 years ago, I started working on a project called GLTF, which is the 3D mm -hmm. file format that actually everyone uses now. Um, if you want to see a model online, it's... It's in GLTF, most likely. All the tools support exporting it. Web pages can load it. You know, people have JavaScript libraries that just know how to load it. Um, if you put a 3D object in a PowerPoint, the native format is GLTF. Um, mm -hmm. All the NFTs you see in 3D now on OpenSea and on uh, Bitcoin Ordinals kind of digital assets, those are all GLTF files. So it's, it's an international standard that's used by a billion people, maybe. Wow, so that's, that's awesome. a huge success on the open standards front. Sure. On the product side, built the first ever 3D web browser. Uh, it was called Labyrinth, and that was the prototype for VRML. So I basically wrote the first code for the metaverse, you know, the first intentional code to take the web and 3D and put them together, I think, which is a fair argument to be made that that's the first metaverse code. Again, this is yeah. like now two years after Snow Crash was published. Wild, maybe three. Um and then some of the content we built on my early VRML player tech, I mean, these were browser plugins you'd have to install like browser extensions back in the day. Um, there was a really wonderful project called Daniel's Story. It was a recreation of, uh, it, was, it was hosted at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, and it was a recreation of a young boy who didn't survive the Holocaust that was created from his diary. And it was like his room and his artifacts. And it was a cute little walkthrough you could do on a PC connected on the internet. In 1995, that was pretty sublime, you know, like the first uh, meaningful use being a cultural historical thing like that and with, with such pathos, um, which was shortly followed up by probably the first 3D interactive ad ever made online by a content creation company called Planet Nine Studios. They were building in VRML and we gave them technical support and built the content with them and programmed it. And it was a fly-through of a computer that was a marketing piece for the newest Intel CPU, which back then was, I think it was called the 486 or the 5, it was the 586, the Pentium chip. Um, so this is still something where you needed a desktop computer and whatever, but, you know, basically mm -hmm. we made this interactive piece, which was a gorgeous fly-through of a circuit board and boom. You go in in the middle of this Pentium chip and then you roll over it or click on it and call-outs would happen of all the features, you know, how, how much performance you're getting out of this new chip, what the prices were, whatever, you know. Um, so first interactive 3D ad, uh, you know, we did the tech for that. That's amazing. Um, I mean, everything you're talking yeah. about uh, is stuff that a lot of brands are coming to us at, at AWS asking to do. And no one's really doing it well and at scale. 
And a lot of these things are still being built um, on clients with a client side apps like Unity and Unreal. Right. What is it about the web that has made it so stubborn? Like, wh- why hasn't 3D on the web really had a you know Cambrian explosion type moment? Like, what's holding web-based 3D back today? Well, I don't know what the holdup is right now. Seeing the last three or four years prior to that, the mobile gaming era dominated the economics around 3D graphics. And, you know, obviously, you know, other 3D platforms, consoles, for example, very, very game dominated. Um, Now, the problem then is you get the hammer and nail issue, which is the people who make the stuff don't see anything but games. And the people who want the stuff for other applications don't know, they they can't find folks to build them the technology, uh, except for maybe military simulation be the only other, you know, kind of app and use case that would pay that would support an ecosystem around this, right? Um, so that ecosystem around the game industry has fueled all this innovation in 3D graphics. Mm-hmm. And those applications, and you see it, I mean, you, you were just mentioning Unity Unreal, the game engines, they don't have a lot of motivation for moving off onto the web. And they, and, and they don't have the cultural mindset again, because it's like, oh, it's a game. People package it into an app. It goes into an app store. which is ironic for unity and i don't want to sound too triggered and i did have six wonderful years there but there was some frustration at times too the ironic part was unity started as a web browser plugin really when i first encountered unity in 2008 and met david like a year david helgeson the founder like a year or two later their main product was a browser plugin that they got 10 or 20 million downloads of because they built Mm. some content with cartoon network and a few other big ips Mm. um but then they moved off of that and started m- focusing much more on mobile, and that's when their business took off. It was powering mobile gaming. So I mean, you get it, and you see the circumstances behind it, the economics and the sociology. But you know that doesn't account for say the last four or five years where Unity's customers and I'm sure Epic's customers as well have been saying like, I don't want to install an app. <laughs> uh, I yeah. want all these other non-game use cases. Give me 3D. I want the 3D. I see it. I see the value of it. I want to do a training application. I want to get in VR. And I want to have an instant, easy way to install this stuff. I mean, even folks at Meta and Oculus don't get it. And uh, I'm preaching to the choir because when we (laughs) met, you were working at a different company called Meta um, that did understand the enterprise use cases of this and the web browsing and the visualization use cases driven by, founded by visionaries. But, you know, this version of Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, originally Facebook, doesn't didn't really get it either i mean they purchased this company oculus and really focused on gaming they didn't and they've had multiple programs to support non-game use cases and still never really landed any of them despite the protestations of the customers who really wanted this stuff despite folks coming to them saying here's what i want to do with this stuff and then you know how big companies are they go well you don't want to do that you want to do this like and you need a Facebook yeah. login for this. And like, why would you want to install, you know, and a hot, like update 50 devices at once? Because, you know, my IT guy wants to hit one button. <laughs> I don't want to have to hand install things from an app store 50 times for my 50 enterprise customers, right? Yep. Just give me a bulk license, take my money, right? <laughs> and they're not taking the money, right? And so it. here yeah, we are. These are all problems it's, that we're trying to solve right now at, at AWS. Well, so, well, there you go. You know, well, hire me, dude. I'm, I, I'll consult a little bit while <laughs> I'm getting my musical off the ground. Yeah, and and so I mean, it's easy. It's easy to say all this stuff in hindsight, but I also did live through it, so I do think I know what I'm speaking about here a little bit. 
And so then, you know, when you look at 3D in the web, sure. it's, it, it is inevitable. Um, I think the buzz around Metaverse got people really over their skis a couple of years ago. You know, Zuck renaming the company to Meta. Everyone say Metaverse, Metaverse, Metaverse. All the books coming out, all the consultants, all the noise. So all of a sudden, you get this hype around this stuff and people think, okay, now where are the, you know, massive scale virtual worlds that are photorealistic mm. where a million people are mulling around and I'm, you know, seeing a live concert and all this. They did it in Fortnite. Why doesn't this work everywhere? And they're ignoring the fact that we do have web browsers that can do 3D today on any device. Um, we've got these formats like GLTF. The internet's freaking fast. And now we have payment rails around this. There is plenty we can build a metaverse out of right now. And mm -hmm. there are some emerging metaverse companies that are doing their best already. Ready Player Me, Decentraland, uh, Sandbox, Spatial, uh, On Cyber. There's a long list of folks who are proto-metaverse who are just, they're using this tech right now. And it's not, okay, it ain't the matrix, but maybe we don't need the matrix, right? Yeah. And we can use these tools to do some really incredible stuff if we get our expectations aligned with what is important and a lot of that stuff yeah. isn't important we, we I, snow crash isn't a blueprint it's a cautionary tale we don't need to yeah, stick yeah. everyone in vr all the time uh to get rugged by crypto thieves um we don't need to do that <laughs> we can use these technologies to do really great things to make us more productive we can definitely do fun stuff definitely entertaining stuff don't get me wrong um, but i think we just got to have to set the expectations right and align that with the existing technology and then I would think that 3D and the web will flourish. Mm. Mm, um, very well said. Though I put my time of service in, I'm just going to say at this point, if it doesn't, I feel like I've, I gave it my level best. So again, I'm going to see like maybe the kids will come in and get it right now. Um, I am a little frustrated it's taken that long and you can hear the passion in my voice around this, but um, yeah. I do think it will happen. And I think it, if, uh, in that future casting of the 20 years from now, for sure, I think 3D will be um, a media type we just take for granted and will be easy to create. And with new tools like AI, even easier to create and better cameras and more capture. So there's a lot that will go into making this easier for everyone. Um, I think that's going to happen. And the art, I'm, I'm about to crack myself up, Evan, because I was going to say in the next five years. <laughs> and you know how long I've been saying that. So I'm just not even going to say it. <laughs> yeah, don't jinx yourself. Don't jinx the industry. Yeah. So yeah. You, you're still fighting a good fight, though, obviously. Uh, and you're doing it from a different, on a different front now. So you've seen all these different hype cycles. You've had so much hope across each one. What have you learned about hype cycles and about expectation setting and about timing? Like, I'm sure you look back and you have, oh, I can, I'm sure you have tons of hindsight bias. Like, what is the hindsight you realize, but that you yeah. wish you saw now? Well, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have or done then. 3D on the web 20 plus years too early. Um, <laughs> would have just built a web page builder, you know, PayPal or something. Um, but I really was into the tech, you know. Uh, what about crypto earlier? Friends were telling me about it 10 years ago. Those are probably my two big, like, you know, buy Apple stock, you know, 20 years ago, right? Um <laughs> But besides that, I mean, I would say advice to entrepreneurs and hype cycles and those kind of things. I think it's in the name itself. I think the biggest danger you get into with a hype cycle is when the industry starts feeding on itself and you get from painting a vision of the future 
to, um, you know, getting high on your own supply. Yeah. Drinking your own Kool-Aid. And it becomes a vicious circle between entrepreneurs wanting to get money and investors needing to put money somewhere. And we've seen how many tech successes fueled by this, but we've seen so many failures and so many hype bubbles as well. I think the biggest danger is if you're an entrepreneur um, playing to the crowd to get the money you need. I mean, I get it. You need to survive, but doing that to placate investors doesn't necessarily get you what you need to build your business. And investors don't know. They know money. They're not sophisticated technologists, even the smartest mm -hmm. ones of them in the room, you know, and I can list them off and you know, all these same VCs yeah. and they're super smart and we have drinks with them, but they, and, but they're few and far between the rest are money people. They follow the herd, they follow trends, they read reports. Um, they need someone else to tell them what's cool. Just like in every, every money people in every industry, it's the same in the music yeah. business and everywhere else. Complete herd um, mentality. It's crazy. How yeah, complete herd mentality, right? So you have to just you know, ignore that noise and build business and build your business uh, to the point where you have pain and say, if I had this much more money, I can get these many more customers. And that is stuff that investors can't argue with. They can say, oh, you know, it's not a business I'm into, but they can't say that's not, you know, oh, I see the numbers. That's, yeah, okay. That looks like a good business. Not for me, but it looks like a good business. So that's one thing. And that's, that's always been the hard one for me because I only like to work on problems that have this really high fly vision and really need a lot of investment and you're not going to get the customers one at a time, right? Now, if you're an entrepreneur who's had some previous success, it's a very different thing. Like if you've scored a hundred million bucks in one of your ventures, you can walk mm -hmm. in anywhere with the most ridiculous piece of paper and someone's going to give you a little seed money to try it because you've got the Midas touch. But, you know, if you're first timer or if you've been just like swinging for the fences and missing a few times, you know, you need to take a different approach. And it's just very hard for people to accept that, especially if they have a burning vision of the way the future should be. And, you know, we know those type of entrepreneurs and we love them. We work with them because they're they're captivating. They have their building, you know, they're Rosamandias. They're building ziggurats. They're building cities. They're building these amazing <laughs> things. And sometimes those things stand up. Right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's so easy to get sucked into the vision of an enigmatic founder you've seen a lot of them you've been in a lot of companies that have them you've been one of them yourself what are some of the most common mistakes you see these people making because most of them fail and most of them are over their skis and are full of shit um we think we know a lot of these people that's the biggest thing i've learned is that a lot of founders are full of shit so what are the mistakes that they're making like what have you learned about these people that are just overly ambitious if you will yeah i mean let's talk about the people stuff for a second and then maybe we can unpack that and workshop it a little bit it's it's an ongoing thing for me it's just like what is it what is it about startup people and i'm going to kind of attack it a little bit obliquely for a second here mm -hmm. because i've been spending all this time with my musician friends mm -hmm. and a lot of them are like me now they're project founders they're basically startup entrepreneurs they're mm -hmm. they're independent musicians who back in the day when independent music, when I was coming up, it was like, sell your CDs off the back of a truck, print your own t-shirts. You know, you're paying probably to even get into play, but then when you build an audience, you're starting to make money. They're doing the same thing, but with the tools of Web3 and online communication tools like, you know, Twitter Spaces, Discord. Um, 
and they're grinding away, they're busting their asses, and they could probably all use some investment because some of them, and, and, and they could probably, they probably deserve some investment. Some of them are actually doing really well. So I started thinking about this of what if angel investors invested in music artists? Like directly, yeah. not in the record companies, not in the next version of Spotify that's just going to try and like suck the life out of these artists. Sorry, but it's true. Um, so I started posting questions like that online and people were answering from my, you know, metaverse world of Twitter followers, their X followers. They were answering things like, well, what, what did I say? Oh, if you could have invested in Taylor Swift or Justin mm -hmm. Bieber back in the day, would you have? And I got several answers that were along the lines of, if I knew they weren't going to flame out, be a druggie, not show up for their shows, have mental problems. Yeah, sure. And then my answer to them was, unlike startup founders? <laughs> yeah. Because we know the truth, that startup founders are people too. And in order to have the kind of vision and With drive that it symptoms, takes, right? they're- In general. They're not very different from rock stars. Mm -hmm. They just have different, you know, tool set. They're like, you know, programmer geeks or product people or, you know, creative directors, but they're not, you know, singers and songwriters, visual artists, but they're doing, they're making the same moves. And so that's one of the things you got to realize is that <clears throat> your founder team are still people. Um, people have led to every one of the startup successes and disasters that I have had in my career. I'm one of those people as well. I haven't been perfect. Um, so that's the key thing is like team selection uh, before you get to in. I mean, you never know to work with people, though. That's the other. Yep. You just don't know. Until bulls right. start flying. You don't know. Yeah. Right. Um, there's no shortcut for that uh, other than, you know, be mindful and understand and, and, and be ready that that could happen with anyone on your team, including yourself. Um, and yeah. And then I guess the other thing would be, this is the probably other really super hard part for most founders is as much of your life is wrapped up in this. It's work. Yeah. Right. And most of them make it their life though. Is, is that, right. is that the mistake? You know, back to the question of like, what's the biggest mistake you see? I think making. it is, is that but one of the most upstream ones. Yeah, I think it is. It's one of the most upstream ones. And the problem is the culture really encourages it too. the Silicon Valley investing culture encourages it. You know, they'd rather fund a, you know, 22 year old with no experience. that will work a hundred hours, you know, than an old yep. geezer like me at this point, because they know I'm not going to like do that. Um, <laughs> no, despite, you know, I mean, the you, fact you, that I might you know, it matters at this point. Right. And that's yeah. sort of the ethos of this whole podcast. This idea of medium energy is all about whether it's our careers, our work, our play, our relationships, the balance is the most important thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, balance and, 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 medium, right? and, what, and what we're doing with all this tech. I mean, what is it for, right? That's, that's, that's key to the whole thing. I think that's, again, when I had to step out and just take this for, you know, take a different tack for a while. Um, I'm asking myself, what am I doing this for? And what are we doing this for collectively with all this tech and media what's your answer to that question everything we do well i mean i know what the answer is for me but i think the most important thing is to pose the question like let's ask why but if it doesn't somehow involve making the world a better place i don't know why you're here why are you showing up and i i guarantee you not everybody thinks that way but for me i i've got it that's how i gotta come at it now 
So after so many times thinking it's five years out and not being five years out, what has kept you to keep showing or it's allowed you or forced you or driven you to keep showing up? Well, so for the second and third five years, I was just like, oh, it was just a little bit of a rounding error. So I got to keep grinding because it's any minute now. Yeah. Then, you know, at some point the reality sets in that, oh, this stuff just is going to take a little longer. It's it's so many forces at play here. Just because one can imagine something doesn't mean you can manifest it, especially very ambitious things like this that require a lot of tech. Um, yeah, but then I'd say there was a certain amount of um, renewed hope as technology evolved to catch up. So mm -hmm. by the time I was like well into that third wave and about to be disillusioned, my own third five-year plan, um, all of a sudden, here we are, like, here comes Oculus Kickstarter. Uh, mobile computing is now fast, right? There is, so you can actually get 3D in a web browser with WebGL. Oh, people are banding together to create standards like GLTF. Oh, so technology's catching up. Consumer behavior's catching up. We want everything real time. We want it fancier. We want it, you know, we're video game kids. We're grown up on it, you know, interactive culture, iPads, we're swiping. So... The last two five-year periods have definitely been thinking the underlying kindling is there for the wildfire for this to happen right now. Yep. Um, again, midway through that, though, um, I've, got, I've got a little frustrated that there wouldn't be more people kind of jumping in and going like, this is the way, this is how it's going to happen. That said, you know, two years ago or so it was when this metaverse craziness really came on full bore and we all got you know hyped again around it we did see the industry come together and it's still hanging together around this vision that we're going to create an interoperable metaverse so i think it's really going to happen because you get enough players aligned you get enough folks focusing on it that have the technology you know technological acumen the money the m motivation and business models this is a new frontier to scale up our business you know unity's got to grow epic's got to grow all yeah. these content companies got to grow um, and do something new and different. Uh, consumers demanding more stuff, you know, in the wake of the pandemic, folks, you know, experiencing more remote and online. Um, it's definitely going to happen. For sure. And so I'm, I just, you know, again, for me, I've just made the personal decision to kind of be a bit of a spectator on the tech side of this, but, and, and again, why not, you know, put the tools into action myself and see what yeah. I can make out of it, which I'm excited about. Um, but yeah, so now what's fueling me is, I've taken, I took the load off my back. I'm personally not trying to carry this or be one of those folks that's pushing this anymore. It's either going to happen or it's not. And in the meantime, I got other fish to fry, so I'm going to go do that. And I do think it's, I do, I can step back now and go, it's going to happen because all these pieces are coming together. Now, is it going to be, again, I don't think it's going to be Ready Player One or Snow Crash. I think it's going to manifest completely differently. Um, I also don't think we saw... Um, practical AI in terms of the generative stuff happening quite in this timing. So, you know, that's making that really interesting where almost anything we can dream of, we can create, mm. whether it's music, mm -hmm. visual art, 3D or 2D. Um, for good or ill, it's going to happen and there's just going to be more of a proliferation of that. And I hope it actually fuels more creativity. Yeah. As a musician, I have my in addition to my ambivalence about AI being, you know, potentially threatening, you know, unintended consequences as a creator, I'm ambivalent because, you know, when I hear someone saying things like, well, I can just walk up to a computer now and prompt it and 
get a you know get a song i just think to myself you know, put in your thousand hours per instrument like i did you know mother effort yeah and oh, then I, you we can talk then you can use all the ai tools you want but until then right yeah you don't have the ear right a thousand hours is what developed your ear to know what good or your taste yeah, of too, course, right? for sure so you talked about all these different forces at play whether it's social forces like work from home or tech like ai it does feel like we are at the tipping point like i feel like this is perfect storm the vision pro being one of the most exciting ones and not just the vision pro in isolation but i think the meta with the quest 3 now and you're seeing this very public competition with zuckerberg or boz at meta connect saying yeah when are google first... and microsoft going to jump back in right like yeah you know, exactly minute, exactly and in, so right? there's this kind of healthy competitive tension we finally have that's never been there before where you now have boz on stage at meta connect saying this is the first mainstream device it's kind of a call out right over to people like who are thinking about the vision yeah, yeah. pro and you have this interesting tension of you mentioned this idea of you have your own vision of how the metaverse manifests meta all in on metaverse virtual worlds avatars and they've done a better job i think lately about talking about how it's not just all virtual it's virtual and physical and the physical has its yep. place too then you have apple who avoids the term like the plague and they have a very different i think view of how it all manifests where do you sit on that spectrum between those two views i'm not a com i mean i'm a victim of the apple ecosystem and that's all i use <laughs> is their products yeah you know so you're excited um, then about the vision pro I'd, I'd assume uh a b though i'm not a f f um a complete apple device fanboy like some people we know or famous bloggers and have been talking about it for a decade just wait until apple comes out with their device though those people have been right largely and history's going to mm -hmm. judge them as such and they were right um so i have a pretty i think balanced view around apple i love the ecosystem i hate that they're so closed but as a consumer i love what they make and i buy it all the time mm -hmm. um when it comes to this particular thing around spatial computing and the device and the, and the vision of it being for what it is i think they're spot on i think apple's spot on i think um oculus uh through facebook and meta has only ever gotten it like a third right their focus on gaming came from the culture that the device was born and palmer's a gamer the founder palmer luckiest gamer the management team they put together may have had ex desk folks and things in it in the beginning but really you know their content guy jason i mean they just everyone's game industry they brought that into facebook and grafted on you know social yep. and that's the dna and missing the boat completely that this is the next operating system which again something you could probably resonate with based on your mm -hmm. experience in the industry um this is a new kind of computing device let's make it really good and see what people can do with it and yep. of course that includes and apple's never far from the use cases they think a lot about how it's going to be used they're design thinkers they go through the whole journey but they go through it like in a much less biased way then you know i i mean i don't know what they're internal i have no inside information but i'm just imagining that you know in their spatial computing underground lab that no one even experienced until that you know keynote <laughs> like that was the best kept secret um there was nobody in there going well this is really just for video games 
you know, those yeah. nostrums like that. They were very open-minded about it. It's like, it's computer hardware. It's, it's an ecosystem of software tools and content. It's connected. It's people on the go. It's, you know, modern human being. What do they do? Right. I, I just somewhere in Menlo Park, they're having those discussions at Meta, but not at the same level, not as elevated. It's just not the same kind of company. Right. So we'll see. I mean, that said, Meta's commitment to making this affordable, uh, their commitment to fun and gaming is good. And the use cases, the gaming use cases, they own. So I don't know. It's going to be really interesting. But my opinion yeah, it, is it's Apple amazing got it totally right. And yeah. 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 It's amazing how they've naturally ended up on these opposite sides of the spectrum. And with Apple, I think it's a classic case of the founder's ethos driving that, which was, you know, Steve Jobs said famously, you can't start with the technology and then hope someone buys it. I'm paraphrasing, right? He says you got to work backwards right. from the customer experience and what the right. problem to be solved is. And this is one of the Amazon uh, principles as well, like working backwards from the customer. And you can just tell that they sat in a room and they thought deeply about what problems are we solving? You could make the argument that this is tech for tech's sake. In many ways, they're just kind of throwing out this amazing piece of hardware and they're going to see what happens but i think they've found a way to thread the needle and like made both those things true so we'll see i think we're still another well, six um, to eight months out i know but. you can't say anything but you know it's not it's not like amazon hasn't advent uh, ventured in hardware in the past it's true either <laughs> this is true i had we will, we will I, I wrote some of the first uh webgl demos on the fire tv tablet it was like uh -huh. it was called the fire tablet on fire os probably in 2014. yeah yeah amazon's so, got a lot of failures that they're actually quite proud of i think that's one of the things that bezos talks about is like the, some of these failures if you, you know, you're not you gotta have those shots and you gotta have them no doubt yeah so there are some other large companies that would have the resources to really make a go at this to you know try something different as well so uh, Apple's entry into this is nothing but good from that standpoint. It's going to get, you know, larger companies paying attention to that and maybe making some bets there. And as I was saying, you know, how long is it going to be before Google and Microsoft come back in after they start pulled out of uh, VR and mixed reality? Um, we shall see, you know, and there's Magic Leap They'll have out their there. FOMO. They'll have What's their FOMO. They'll have They're going to have yeah, their yeah. FOMO, no doubt. And there's Magic Leap out there with billions invested in existing hardware and you know, lessons learned in IP as well. So it's going to be an interesting time. Um, I think, and this is where I, again, I was getting a little vexed uh, around AI for a short period because it was sucking the oxygen out of the conversation for a while. But I think that pendulum swung back where like, it's all right. It's like AI is not the only thing coming out of everyone's mouth every second now in, in the tech industry. And it was like that for about six months. So maybe people yeah. can start paying attention again to what's going on in spatial computing. Obviously, these technologies aren't separate from each other either, right? No, I, I mean, think people a lot are of spatial computing uses AI, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's two so sides it's of the same coin. Time, right? yeah. You saw the the meta smart glasses, and I think people are realizing that the the form factor for a multimodal AI, right, that can understand the world and create contextual suggestions and nudges. It's not something that sits in your pocket and you pull out and look down at, right? It's, it's a different form factor. And the question that I am asking myself a lot lately is, um, you're, perhaps you saw that OpenAI is talking to Johnny Ives 
about some kind of hardware product. And you haven't seen this? No. So yeah, so that's um, exciting. John, Johnny Ives is talking to Sam Altman right now about working with them on a hardware device that is AI native. And then you have the uh, CEO and founder of SoftBank, also part of the conversation, offering to put a billion dollars into whatever Altman and Johnny Ives come up with. And I am just, I find it so hard to believe that they're gonna come out and say, yeah, we're gonna just build a smartphone for AI and compete directly head on with Apple and Android. That would be a shocker to me. I think they're gonna take a more of a blue ocean strategy approach and go where there's not blood in the water. And what else could it be beyond a pair of AR glasses in my mind? I'm, I'm dying with curiosity. I don't think we're gonna know for a long time, but my, my money is on glasses. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely reasons for that form factor in places where that can add a lot of value. And then again, then it just gets back to everything that I'm consumed with these days, which is why, what are we trying to do? Is that for daily use and nonstop daily use? Is that making us magicians? Is that making us slaves to some other click machine that we haven't figured out yet? Is it, you know, a communication device for us to know, have holographic calls with our mom? Is it, um, is it the next gaming device? Is it the next operating system? Um, be interesting to see where it goes. That's for sure. Yeah. And what, and what do we, what, do, what would this AI AR hybrid beast do for us? Right. I mean, why? So many questions and you're someone who's been in the space, knows the tech so well, and you still have so many questions yourself. I can only imagine what the general consumer is thinking when they see all this stuff. So, which leads me to some of my closing questions here for people out there who aren't experts, aren't close to this, they're just seeing all these announcements. They're seeing all the stuff that looks kind of scary to a lot of people. What do you think is the most common misconception they have about this future and about the metaverse? Well, I think the most common misconception, and I, that's basically why I wrote the seven rules essay was that all the FUD, all the misconception, all the misinformation floating around at the time. Um, and I point out several bits of that, but the far and away top one is the idea that we need to be in some kind of immersive hardware to be in the metaverse. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, the, the metaverse is an evolution of the internet with richer media and more and more real-time communication. Those are to me the two distinguishing distinguishing characteristics. More stuff is live. Instagram live, Twitter spaces, Discords. Again, a lot more stuff happening in real time, real time synchronous communication. Um, versus, you know, the web two era, which was a lot about posting asynchronously and, you know, basically the worst version of ourselves being written in, in posts on, on <laughs> social media. Uh obviously that's still happening on X and, and, and Instagram and Facebook, but um and YouTube in the comments. But uh, yeah, so more and more real-time intimate connections and more rich media are the two distinguishing things, but it's independent of what kind of devices we have. And it has to be for a bunch of reasons. Not everyone has access to all these devices economically, physically based on disabilities. Um, not everyone who creates content wants to force everyone to have a certain kind of way to experience it. You know, if there's something that can be experienced with 90% fidelity, and these are stupid numbers I'm throwing up, but like, you know, and, and inexact and precise. But if I can get some uh, 
facsimile of an experience on a web page where I didn't have to get a new piece of hardware. That's good for the creator because that means they can reach more people or in a mobile app, whatever, versus forcing them to go get the latest Quest, right? Or the Apple Vision Pro for $3,500. Um, so yeah, those those are not the only entry points to the metaverse. That is definitely the first one. Uh, the second one is that it's all about playing around in game worlds, right? And And it's not. It is about everything we do online, having, again, a more real time and a more rich media expression to it. So that could be for work or play, that could be for learning, um, you know, that can be simulation and training, that could be a digital twin of a factory for people to plan, it could be for engineering. Um, all of these are use cases for the metaverse. So those are, the, to me, the two big ones. And those are two of my- Yeah, that, those, those last the ones you gotta go read. resonate. Go, go find the essay. Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. Yeah. The last one resonates with me. And I think that's one of my favorite answers when people ask me why this future, why the metaverse? It's that we're already living in a pseudo metaverse. You just don't realize it, right? We're already dating in Bumble and Hinge in virtual, you know, rooms, if you will. We're already shopping in virtual stores with Amazon. We're already having meetings in virtual offices via zoom yeah. and the question is like is that really the best version of that thing that you could imagine when you close your eyes could we not unlock that from a small little screen or a a picture of someone with a few questions when you're swiping and looking for your future right. partner is there not a better way to connect and it's always been hard to point at good examples as to why that's more powerful but i think one of the ones that happened most recently that I'm now showing people and it's really shifting their reaction is the most recent uh, interview that um, Lex Friedman did with Mark Zuckerberg. Did you, see, did you see that interview yet? I did not. You haven't seen that yet? It's a must watch. So he did an interview and they were in the quote unquote metaverse and it was using the Facebook, uh, Facebook's new avatar technology. Mind blowing levels of photorealism, not just photorealism, but like, actual eye movement, small little, you know, flickers of your eyebrows, um, the small hint of your, you know, lips when you smile. And it was, it was spellbinding. It was mesmerizing to see it get this good. And I'm like, okay, we're so close because when that becomes the way that you can connect with someone on the next gen bumble and you're in a art gallery and you meet them because they walked up to the piece of art that you liked in a virtual gallery versus just this sort of very at a distance swiping and yeah. messaging and crossing your fingers. I'm locking onto the dating example, but you can project that out to so many different moments, um, be it healthcare, like you said, or education. So yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to, to frame it. Um, so final way I like to close these out, Tony, I think, you know, a lot of people end podcasts with, uh, a question they want to get a good answer out of people um, and I like to ask questions but get a question back because as we face this inflection point right like I said before people are scared and they're paranoid and they're looking for answers about the right way to adopt this tech and what this future means but I think before we can answer or provide any answers we need to be asking the right questions so one of my missions on this podcast is to just gather questions from some of, some of the smartest people in the world thinking about this 
future. So if you had to think of one question that you're thinking about the most, or that is the most important question for humanity to be asking itself in this moment in time, facing this change, what's that one question? Something like this. The internet got us all connected. Now what? Or so what? That's what we got to ask ourselves. And I, and I hinted at this before. What are we going to do with this technology to make the world a better place? Like one thing. We have climate catastrophe looming. We have massive political upheaval across the globe. Uh, we have inflamed tensions created by this technology that connected us. Um, we have massive income inequality in lots of places in the world. Um, what are we going to do about any one of those things? Pick one. And can we fix it? Fix it with more connection. Yeah, with more use, can we use with, this technology to make any mm -hmm. one of those things better? I think the answer is most likely yes on many fronts, and we'll we'll let that will one marinate <laughs> in the minds. Sorry, Anthony. Yes, yes, we can, but will we? Maybe that's I should will rephrase yeah. the question. All right. <laughs> yeah. Will we? Will we? Well, it's up to the listeners of this podcast, the ones who are building and creating, to to think about that and act right actually actually put some ideas and thoughts into action so tony awesome conversation as we wrap where can people follow your new project follow you um etc any, any any places you want to point them to yeah i'll throw you some links verbally and then we can throw them on the project page um so at sign aura deluxe on twitter a-u-r-a-d-e-l-u-x-e is my handle or look up my name on twitter Okay. Uh, judgmentdaymusical.com is the main website for the musical and it's got all the information on the show it's got pointers to the streaming music that's up there now uh, it's got info on the nfts uh, metatron.studio is the new shingle i've hung as a content creator um it's a metaverse okay. content company uh, mostly focused on the judgment day project now but we're going to be doing more and more original ip um, look me up on medium that's where i do my blogging and that's it in the usual socials. I love it. Well, Tony, I'm excited to watch you reap the fruits of your labor these last 20, 30 years as someone on the, on the other side of the fence, using the tools, benefiting from all the progress we've made in this space, largely due to some of your thinking and some of your innovation. So thanks for your contribution as one of the Metaverse OGs and uh, our listeners, thank you for tuning in and uh, I'll see, see you out there on the front lines. See you soon, man. Thanks so much. This was great. Of course. As always, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you enjoyed, please do subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. We have a lot more to come. If you're willing to spare 15 seconds, we would beyond appreciate a quick rating on this podcast. It goes a very long way towards helping this thing grow. Thanks again. And until next time.